0: Hey, it's Tuesday, April 19th. You are watching Market Call. You know what it is. It's MKT Call. I'm Dan Nathan. I am joined by Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charting. Guy Adami will not be here today. I would say that he has the day off, but he doesn't. He's working very hard somewhere doing something else, not with us. Today's Market Call is brought to you by CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. And of course, powered by Open Exchange because they manage virtual meetings that matter. Today, we're looking at a rally in the broader markets, calls for higher rate hikes, the classic Dow theory alive and well, Carter says, plus the implied move for Netflix, which reports after the close. We're going to give you a little kind of back of the envelope sort of thing, how to figure out implied moves into earnings. Carter Braxton Worth, worth charting. Welcome back to Market Call. Thanks for filling in for Guy today.
1: You bet. I mean, there's only one guy, but... Uh You know, fill-ins are fill-ins.
0: You're 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 gotta do it. You're my guy, you're my number one guy today. All right, how's that? All right, let's let's talk about this because like 24 hours ago on market call when guy was here, we were talking about just kind of the price action. It felt kind of you know weak. You know, last Thursday we had that kind of nasty down day. Things in the stock market accelerated to the downside. We had rates higher, we had the dollar higher, we're gonna hit all of that sort of stuff today. What do you make of an opening like today where when I woke up this morning at like 6 a.m., the S&P futures were down like 30 basis points. Rates were a little higher. Here we are now. The S&P is kind of raging. It's up one and a quarter percent. The Nasdaq's up nearly 2 percent. It just seems like it's just a lot of back and forth here, man.
1: It is. It's chop. And I would say it this way, that there are things that have been very consistent for a long time, whether you want to market as three, six months, year to date, one year, and there's things that have been, frankly, random. I mean, the strength in steel stocks has been consistent, the strength in energy stocks, uh, the move higher in rates. These have been consistent uh, events, circumstances, trends, patterns. The market itself is just that it's inconsistent, it's all over the place, a lot of volatility, shocking drops and gaps, incredible rebounds like today. And yet, all for what? We know here we are, year to date. And basically, there are only three sectors that are up on the year. Market itself is down. And the ones that are up, they're hugely defensive. It's energy up 44. And after that, it's utilities and staples. And the rest of them are down. And some of them are down a lot. And the big three, if you will, tech down 14, consumer discretion, of course, Amazon driven down 14. And then Telco, which is obviously driven now no longer by T and VZ, Telephone and Verizon is driven by Google and Facebook, and it's down 10. It's a lot of chop. We're going nowhere. Hard Hard to trade.
0: Yeah, it is hard to trade. You know, I had um, a drink last night with an old friend of mine who's been the markets for like nearly 30 years, and he has a pretty senior job at a huge multi-strat um, hedge fund. And they are all over the place as it relates to markets. They're they're macro, they're their sectors, their crypto, their VC, they're everything. Okay. And you know, he and I were talking about the sentiment right now. It's just really bad. Everybody's bearish, you know. And I was reading Jim Kramer's opening note that he puts out every morning, kind of recapping what went on overnight. The first Comment he meant he made was the analysts are extremely bearish. Now, what's important about all that sentiment is that heading into earnings season, when you had you know this kind of down note, you had that AAII sentiment reading, I think, at like 30 year lows as it relates to bulls that was going around on Twitter over the weekend. That's a tough setup. And the last thing I'll just say is like yesterday on Market Call, we ran like we flashed up a screen of all these kind of high valuation names that have gotten absolutely cream that were acting really poorly again yesterday. They're all raging. If I look at my screens right now, Roku, which was down like 5% yesterday, is up 9%. So it's a lot of just crazy action. And you do set up to be a little bit of a coiled spring when everybody's on the same side and everyone's bearish in front of events.
1: Right, and all these indicators, they're, they are how would I say it? We're all hoping for some magic, like, I've got this reading, this is the answer, it's perfectly contrary, And X number of times out of X number of times, 30 yeah. out of 31, or 200 out of 200, it's worked out. And yet, what if it's 200 out of 202? Meaning, you know, you talk to a real statistician, they'll say you need something in the order of two to 300 inputs to have something that's statistically viable. And so when we look at these sort of... Uh, things, if you will, about yeah. the market or yeah. these readings. Eh, I don't know, they're good until they're not. Yeah. Well,
0: you know, Carter, <laughs> no one said there was going to be any math here, buddy. All right. Well, let's go over to a friend. Um, Of CNBC's Fast Money, Marco Kalanovic, he's been coming on the program for a while. He is the, uh, I think he's like the derivative strategist over at JP Morgan Asset Management. And he, uh, I guess he was out with a note this morning, pretty timely here. He said, near term, we could rally. He had a little chart there showing over the last, I don't know, however long, again, another random stat over 30 years, how we usually get this dip the first half of April into tax with tax, you know, selling or raising capital pay taxes. And then we have this move after. I think we had a stat. At last week, where fifteen of the last sixteen Aprils have been higher, what are your what's your take on like a tactical like you know near term rally call that it's likely?
1: Yeah, hard to. I mean, there you go. There's one of those things, fifteen and sixteen yeah. Aprils, and like would we go and bet our retirement savings and that of someone we're responsible because of it might be sixteen and seventeen or might not. Um, Tough. And again, I I don't sort of traffic in that stuff. And it's not to say whether that's right or wrong, but, you know, one can make those bets. There's a book uh, put out by Hirsch. It's over 100 years older. It's called The Stock Traders' Almanac. It's got every possible thing. What do you do on the third Thursday after the market's been I mean, it's endless.
0: Yeah, no doubt. All right, let's look at this because, you know, you're the chartist. I'm just kind of the wannabe here. But like, as I've said on many occasions on CNBC and on Market Call, I kind of learned everything I know about charting from you, buddy. If, All right, <laughs> well, there you go. Bad, but, but, but my charts, look, my charts, my charts are like for the simpletons here. So here's the S&P 500 futures here. And I look at this chart and I connected two points. That's what you tell me. I have to connect two points, correct? On the downtrend yeah, here. At least, yep. at, at least two. Yes, okay. All right, so here's the deal, right? We top down on January 4th, we had that really precipitous job in January. And that was also into earnings season two, if you will, we had a little bounce. Then February, we made a new low Okay. then we bounced a little bit. And then in March, we did not make a new low. Now, here we are. We kind of pulled back. We got below your 150 day moving average. And now I have two points of a little bit of an uptrend, not particularly significant here. But this kind of feels like no man's land, if you will. Speak to me about the S&P futures chart here, because, again, it doesn't seem horrible okay the fact that we didn't make a new low in march okay is probably mildly constructive give me your take on the setup for the s&p 500. well that's
1: right if, if if you just the key to any charting really is to pretend you didn't know what it was like unfortunately or fortunately we know this is the s&p but let's yeah. say it literally was just a chart with no no uh ticker right no yeah. name would you rush out and say man i gotta short that thing not particularly would you say this is this is it it's bottoming I got to get long. No, sometimes you're just in a period of equilibrium or what we started talking about together, which is the chop and the sideways, tough moment. There is, and it's all over the internet, of course, this is prospect of this being a minor head and shoulders bottom with this current uh, sell-off over the past two weeks being the right shoulder. You would need that, if that's the case, to have immediate strength from here. Uh, perhaps it's earnings that does that. But uh, I would say this is the kind of, sometimes, you know, they say the best, you uh, decisions, the ones you never make, I would say that's your sometimes the best bets. Investments, the ones you're doing. just leave it alone. Find a good stock or find a good currency or commodity. It's a pair of twos, tough hand to play.
0: All right, talk to me because you had a note out talking about uh, unfilled no. gaps here in the S&P. So let's
1: look at that. I mean, that's something I got uh, one chart and it basically looks at uh, the unfilled and filled gaps. Now those sort of fainter dotted horizontal lines were unfilled gaps that have been filled. Yep. And then what we have is two uh, unfilled gaps that remain unfilled. One is just inches above 50 base points above. That's from last Monday when we gapped down, that's at 44.74. And then we have one from exactly a year ago. That's the first week in April. And that's down there at 40.20. Uh, and that's again, about 9.5, 10% from where we are now. now Do all gaps get filled? No, there isn't a sort of rule on that. But that gap down there is uh, very much in play in the sense that um, the Nasdaq was down 22% from its peak and the S&P down only 12. Ultimately, does the S&P draw down more before we make a new high? And that's yeah.
0: my hunch. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, look, I'm, I'm in that camp. You know, the guys in that camp, you've heard them say 4,000 and possibly 3,750 to the downside. You know, 4,000 is your filling in of that gap. I'll just say this on a day like today, it's kind of interesting is that Apple, which is obviously the largest component in, in the SP and in the NASDAQ, is underperforming the broad market. The S&P is up one and a quarter percent, and Apple's up a little less than 1%. And, you know, the one way that we get to that 4,200 level, then maybe back to fill in that gap down there at 40, 50, If we have a couple of these big names that have shown really good relative strength, if they were to guide down and correct, because Apple's only down six and a half percent on the year, which seems kind of odd to me. But that's why I think that's the setup of the NASDAQ. It looks really different. Going back to my simple charts here, Carter, talk to me about this, because I strode the same two points on a downtrend, the same two points on an uptrend. You see you called it to a T that the NASDAQ 100 here in the futures, it stopped out late last month right at its 150-day moving average. And here we are catching a little support at that mild little uptrend from 13,000 in the NASDAQ 100 futures.
1: Right. So again, you can connect any two points. So is that the uptrend? But here's the key thing. It did make the new low. And you talked about that. And we talked about it together. Uh, the S&P doesn't make a new low in March, right? Whereas the NASDAQ 100 did, and this is where we get our answers for the market, meaning if and as you were to get trouble, earnings related, out of yep. Apple or Google or some of the marquee names, at the very same time that steel stocks and energy stocks are further and further stretched, a general market sell-off can come from all fronts, where the stretch names give ground. Look at, look at Nuon today, uh, a bit stretch and now giving ground. And the sluggish ones, Microsoft, Google, actually get more sluggish. That nets out as lower prices for the
0: yeah, that Yeah, that's kind of my take too. I appreciate that. Let's talk about small caps though. This is kind of interesting when you think about what are some of the issues that we have right now that are facing- corporates right now, their ability to pass through costs for higher, um, you know, inputs, that sort of thing. So inflation, you know, from wage inflation to energy to all sorts of things, that's an issue. And obviously, you know, interest rates going higher. When you think about small cap companies, you know, while they don't have a lot of the international exposure that a lot of U.S. multinationals and the large caps do, they do have the risk of, you know, you know, having the impact of just some of the domestic issues as it relates to inflation and higher rates, and they're much more sensitive to rates. Look at the Russell 2000 futures here. When you look at this thing, I mean, it just speaks just sideways, but you see the line that I drew. It's below the 150-day moving average. It's still you know, a little less than 20% from that all-time high in November. It just seems stuck. What does small, t- small caps say to you in this environment?
1: Right. So there are a couple things about that. We know that the Russell, interestingly, it's 2000 names, but the whole thing, all the market cap of all the stocks added up, uh, is about the same as the top three to four stocks in the S&P. So in, in, in one way, it, it's just a, a big compendium of a lot of stocks that individually don't mean much. Now, that being said, it does have a characteristic of higher beta, and it does have a heavier weighting in financials, a lot of regional banks versus the S&P. And then there is the issue that you know, it is domestic by definition. So currency translation and earnings as it relates to that are not important. Um is also a pair of twos, just a worse one. Yeah. It's it stuck. It, why would we rush out and bet that long or short? I, just don't, I think we leave it alone.
0: Yeah, so what do you do on a relative basis here? Because obviously, you know, it, to me, leaving it alone, um, there might be some kind of interesting, um, I don't know, comparisons to it. I know you brought some charts here. Talk to me.
1: Yeah, relative. Well, the real trouble is going to be if we lose the Apples and Googles, then my, the Russell 2000 is the winner, relative. But it's not because it's really winning He's the other guy fell on his face so just by standing up you're you're winning the uh, competition but i mean one area i like a lot is REITs, and this is a it's an optically a nice chart what it is is a ratio chart we're looking at the relative performance of the msci us reit index that's all reits right and it's relative performance to all stocks the russell 3000 right talk about a rounding bottom a bearish to bullish reversal a base I mean, and we're making new incremental relative eyes. Now, utilities are also defensive, right? But they're stretched. And so if one's looking for a sort of a, a defensive area of the market, uh, I think this is one of the best ones. IYR, of course, is the way to play it.
0: All right. We have a question here from John Anderson. We love John Anderson. He is always watching our market call and engaging uh, with our content. So we appreciate you, John. He's asking, is there a big pharma name that jumps out at you guys, he said, Johnny John, Johnson and Johnson is looking good. How do you think of, uh, you know, we just saw um, a couple of these names get hit kind of hard Pfizer um, the other day. I'm just curious, are you thinking about the large cap pharma as defensive also?
1: Yes, and they are, except they've, you know, they were true growth stocks. Pfizer at its height Merck were really putting up numbers. Now they're they're sort of mature growth and some uh, don't have a whole lot of growth at all. Uh, they're in many ways they're compared to staples uh, to a certain extent, but of the big ones, I still like Amgen. Um, I also like some of the devices like uh, Boston Scientific, Stryker. But healthcare overweight relative market.
0: Yeah, sure. no, that makes some sense, sense here. And the valuations are probably okay <clears throat> there too. All right, let's move on. This this headline yesterday from Fed Governor Bullard. Um, you know, he he basically, and I thought this was really interesting, the market kind of rallied off it. The market was kind of heading lower into the close, and this came out in the last hour. And and uh the SP futures rallied kind of sharply here. He said Fed Bullard says 75 basis point hike could be an option if needed. He said it's not his base case, but it could be this thing. What do you think the likelihood is that the Fed, right now we have the CME Fed Watch tool pricing in more than 90% chance that we get a 50 basis point hike, okay, at the May meeting, which is the first week of May. What do you think the chance is, and you've been doing this a long time, that the Fed really wants to surprise the markets? Is that a trial balloon by him coming out and saying, what would the reaction be in the stock market? I'm just curious your thoughts there, because generally, my experience when the Fed surprise market participants it doesn't exactly go the way they hope it to.
1: Right. Well, remember, there's two errors, of the Fed, there's the uh, history of the Fed, and then there's the current era, if you will. The the Fed is not answerable to the people. The Fed is not answerable to you and me. They're not answerable to the TV. They're not answerable to the online traders. They're not answerable to the biggest brokerage. They used to just do what they do. Now it's all about the whisper and we'll kind of guide them there. We don't want surprises. And so in the modern era, given that that's the way they behave, the odds of a 75 basis point move, I would say, are zero.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting. You know, we were just talking about Gold a little bit, and here's a friend of Market Call. We don't know him, but he goes by Tavi. And it's Costa, and yes, uh, he's great on Twitter. And and I just like you know you do a great job showing some of the relative performance. But this chart I thought was really interesting. It was kind of mapping gold versus global bonds, and you see what's happened. We've had a, obviously a bond route as rates have been going higher globally, and then we've had this gold move over the last few years, which obviously spiked into 2020, and then came back pretty hard. Now It came back really hard as rates were staying low, right? Because all the QE and everything like that, which was kind of weird. And now we have a situation where rates are going higher and we have gold going higher. Talk to me about this, Carter, this kind of relationship here, because again, sometimes you just see some of these big correlations break down.
1: You do. And 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 then you see sort of the mean reversion. But what we know, and I, I think this is maybe the Salient point for this chart or anything like it: when you get an extreme move, down or up, uh, while it's hard to time, the, the mean reversion is ever. Think about lumber going through the roof, and then of course it all comes apart. Right? Nickel, and then it all comes apart. Yeah. Or the way the stock market was down on the COVID low, and then it all reverses. And so you can only go so far it's why people do standard deviation work or they use oscillators to try to mark an oversold and often it goes more overbought and oversold than the imagination will allow but they end up there's no way around this the same way every time you get the mean reversion
0: yeah now that makes sense that's something i've kind of lived by in my market um you know, punditry and also trading and investing, that sort of thing. I mean, usually this it all mean reverse, but when you look at a chart, I guess, um, you know, you look at this gold chart um, and, you know, you say to yourself, okay, so we just had a little bit of a double top here. Um, should gold be rallying? We know that we have, you know, rates rallying. We have the dollar rallying here um, a little bit. We're going to hit those in a second. This doesn't look that compelling other than you have this nice uptrend, I guess, because we've been able to attach five points from that March 2020 low. I'm just curious. Is the uptrend more important to you here or that double top that we just made?
1: I would say the uptrend, but I mean, what we know is that in terms of its sequencing, gold is no different than oil, right? That peak there uh, that you see is the same peak in oil. Oil drops uh, a lot, 130 to 90, gold drops. And then gold has rallied a bit, oil has rallied a bit. Uh, not any great moment, but uh, here and now to say I've got to get directional. But the bias on gold is a longer term thing. And again, half the people believe gold goes up because of deflation, half believe because of inflation. I don't think anybody really knows. This is where we stick with the pattern. And the pattern is generally bullish. You're allowed, if you will, you're entitled to back away from the former high. As of now, that's all it is. It's a normal reaction to a prior high. And only later on, in hindsight, if this is meaningful, you can say, aha, that was a double top. But for now, yeah, and here's the key thing: the GDX during this entire pull off pullback was making new highs. So was Newmont. The gold yeah. stocks act very well.
0: Yeah, no, that's an interesting relationship. And I I will say this, the chorus, at least of the people that I speak to um, and that I read or follow on Twitter, I mean, it seems like everyone's in the same boat that gold goes higher. So maybe to your point, a back and fill holding that uptrend um, makes some sense, especially if you think that the Fed is going to hit rates really hard now in anticipation of that slowdown. And then they maybe take a dovish bend because that would be the thing that maybe reignites the gold trade. But on that same note, you know, The relationship with the dollar is really interesting. Now, we know that, you know, half of the U.S. dollar index, Carter, is the euro, and we know why the euro is unusually weak right now, right? Do you think that, like, what what is the the, the Dixie? What is the U.S. dollar index saying to you? We have a 10-year chart of this thing here. And again, there's a big double top going back to those highs in 2020. We had a meaningful pullback here, but here we are now. We're getting back up into that, that kind of danger zone. Just so you know, you better get ready because Maverick Top Gun is coming out on May 27, and Guy and I are going to be dialing up the Top Gun um, kind of analogies and everything like that. So danger zone. Here we are. We're above yeah. 100 in the Dixie. What is this saying to you?
1: So if you were to focus on the moving average, right? And I think this is key. If looking back since 2012, how far below trend has the DXY gotten and how far above? And if, with the exception of, let's take... That brief moment in the COVID peak there, when you see it spike really high above, or in 2014, this is one of the steepest readings relative to the average price or level over 150 days. And so it is the danger zone in that sense, and sequencing would call for some give back, some dip, some drawdown.
0: Yeah. You know, it's funny. We've been talking a a lot about the macro here. A lot of people who don't know much about the macro to me. I mean, listen, I was brought up as like a stock and options monkey. So I've had to kind of learn some of this stuff as we go along. And I think it's periods like right now where we're forced to kind of understand what some of these historical relationships are. And we don't exactly know what they mean because, you know, we're in an environment that most people have never seen before, right? With the inflation expectations where they are and what the Fed has to do to combat that. And obviously a lot of people are betting that the Fed already made policy errors, they're gonna continue to make them, or they're gonna overdo it as they tend to do. I don't have a clue here. The only thing I'll just say is this, is that when I think about the disconnect with what's going on with all the uncertainty about the macro backdrop and the fact that the S&P 500 is down less than 7% on the year after being up 26%, and we haven't really seen S&P earnings estimates really budge at all from that kind of 228 number trading about 19 and a half times, I say to myself, well, if there's any big disappointments on the earnings front because of U.S., um, you know, You know, like I guess slow down globally with what's going on with the lockdowns in China, the issue with um, demand, possibly from the war in Ukraine, to obviously all these inflation and supply chain issues. And then the last thing would be the dollar for US multinationals, right? That actually are being faced with this multi year dollar. That to me is the big disconnect, which I also think it's interesting that the IMF today, they cut global growth expectations here, right? So it just like seems odd to me, Carter, that we just don't have the large cap US stock market paying any attention to this, or am I just thinking about too much and keep it simple, stupid?
1: I think it's all of those things. And what we do know is it, those are the most broadly owned equities, just as US Steel when it was the largest company in the world or General Motors when it was the largest company or Exxon when it was. And so uh, people, are reluctant to give up on something that's treated them so well. And then there's just the math of, hey, wait a minute, I've got massive gains. I don't really wanna uh, get rid of this thing off to pay taxes because if you do have Apple for two or five or longer or Google, you have massive gains. And so uh, people are slow to abandon something that's worked and that's human nature and there's nothing wrong with that. The real question for equities, as it relates to all of this, whether it's the dollar or whether it's interest rates is that the only way an individual stock or an aggregate of stocks, an index goes higher, is one of two things or a combination of both. Some sort of earnings growth, right? Or multiple expansion. You don't grow your earnings, but you get a higher multiple, or some combination of the two. And given the backdrop and all the things that you've just mentioned, what is the case for meaningful earnings growth when we have cost of inputs rising, labor costs rising, it's not only from commodities, but the labor, and then uh, you have interest rates rising. Yep. None of that argues for. Hey, this is a reason to expand the multiple. Uh, and also, in terms of earnings growth, comps are getting hard. It just. I think the odds of a sideways or down market captures ninety ninety five percent. The odds of right. up
0: gives you. Yep. No, but it's interesting, you know, when you hear these sorts of cuts, and we've heard this now for three years, 2020, 2021, and now 2022 again, we're going to get it back in the second half of the year, which is not exactly what's been the case over the last couple of years. Some of that demand destruction has just gone away, and we keep hearing a pent-up this, pent-up that. It just feels like we're kind of in a in a sort of a new world world. Order a little bit, but talk mm-hmm. to me about a relationship between. Listen, this is the part where I usually make a Guy Dami joke. Where when he and Charles Dow they penned their their white paper on the yes. Dow theory a little sure, bit. Sure. Speak to us. What is yeah. what is what is this telling you right now? And what is it? And we know what this is. Is that so look, if I, we don't see that we don't see the transports yeah. confirm new highs in the industrials? I yeah.
1: mean, I mean, a guy with you know 100 plus years ago with no computer, yeah. Theory, but we have to respect one. <laughs> It's not antiquated. He's the first guy to put a bunch of stocks and call it an index. He he followed this carefully. And the general premise was that you need confirmation from the transports to the industrials or vice versa. And what I've done here um, is looking at the whole world. This is the MSCI World Transportation. So it's not just the planes and trains and boats in the United States and truckers, but it's all over. And we know that it peaked on May 10th. That's almost a year ago. Now look at the MSCI All World uh, Index. Okay, and that's the next chart here. Just to compare the two, we know that the all world index made a new high. And let's toggle May 10, May 10, May 10, May 10. We see that the transports have not made a new high in almost a year. And we see that the world index obviously made new highs, but now it's rolling over. So again, this gets to the concept of our equities generally either stuck sideways are going down versus up. You only got three choices. I think 90 plus percent of the odds are captured in sideways or down.
0: All right, listen, if we were going to take a step back to your yesterday's work, which was amazing, that kind of upside down, that inverted kind of chart world we were living in, if you were to flip this MSCI World Index, you'd be like, I'm buying that thing. It just bounced off that 150-day, and it looks like it's making a rolling bottom. So I'm kind of with you. I don't mean to sound so dogmatic here. We have a nice up day. feels like sentiment was really bad, and maybe we get some good earnings. We're going to talk about one of them that could be kind of changing the sentiment a little bit for tech um but i gotta i gotta hit this first because you know that i come up with some really catchy names as it relates to charts every so often here you gotta look at this bitcoin chart i didn't do it log but like when you think about this bitcoin futures were listed Carter remember this in december of 2017 when bitcoin was bitcoin was in this absolute frenzy remember it went from like ten thousand to twenty thousand and then it crashed from there and i drew a couple lines on this chart going back to the start of 2018 really when the When those um, futures were listed here, and you see what I see, you see a hungry alligator here, right? Right? You see that kind of double top, if you will. All right, all right. Just save it for a second. You 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 see that? At
1: least you did your lines in green. That kind of has
0: alligator. Well, well, that's kind of why I did. But I always do support lines in green because I figure like support is green or whatever. But the headline that kind of caught my attention was that crypto stocks perform worse than cryptocurrencies. Now, Coinbase is the main one, right? We know that's got a big market cap, and yesterday was making new all time lows. Last year, it was listed at $250 in a direct listing. That was when Bitcoin was at the then highs above, I don't know, I think it was like 65,000 or something like that. Talk to me about this chart really quickly here, because to me, it really feels like it's hanging on for dear life, Carter. And I'm not trying to make a bearish call on Bitcoin, but when you see that kind of hungry alligator, I think it wants to take a bite and snap.
1: Right. The first rule of thumb with alligators is they're dangerous. And yeah. the dangerous part is not the tail it's the mouth, right? Yeah. <laughs> so obviously hanging around when the thing closes is not good. But, but what you've done, obviously, and it's important, is we have the peak in 2017. And we approached that. It was exactly Thanksgiving of 2020. And then we backed away and then really busted through. Now, that minor um, sort of series of higher lows that you've drawn, which is the top of the alligators, I well, can't believe I'm
0: Yeah, but oh, you're man. saying it, buddy. But
1: man, I'm saying it. So the question is, do we ultimately fill in that gap from late 2020? It's as good a bet as any.
0: Yeah. And so that's really important. And you probably don't like where I started that kind of uptrend and away from that gap when it went you know, late that's 2020. Right, is it, but, but my point is, so if you really wanted to draw a range, you'd be saying that 30,000 down to that gap, that might be like 24,000 or something like that. And at that point, then you might as well take that thing all the way down to 20,000 because that was that kind of level in which it confirmed the breakout, right? Right.
1: And the one thing, interesting, if you were to run with your eye, the line that you did draw from the gap, if you took that back, it connects exactly with that 2019 peak.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, there you go. I mean, that's why I kind of tune into you and worth charting, there, buddy. All right, let's hit this really quickly because after the close, we have Netflix reporting. The implied move is about ten percent in either direction. I just want to kind of remind uh, listeners, viewers, how we kind of figure that out, how you can figure that out. That's kind of a back of the envelope sort of thing. If you were to take the at-the-money straddle, the weekly straddle, so that would be the April twenty-second, and that is the call premium and the put premium of the at-the-money strike. So with the stock trading. Around Around 350, if you were to pay about 17 and a half dollars for the April 22nd uh, call and 20 or 17 and a half dollars for the April 22nd put, that is the straddle. Okay. That's basically the implied movement. If you take that combined and you divide it by the stock price, you get about you get 10%, okay? So here's the deal. If you were agnostic to which direction it's going here and you just wanted to make a bet that it was gonna go up or down greater than the implied move, you would need a rally if you bought the straddle for $35 by Friday's close of $35 to the upside above 385 to make money or a decline below 315 to make money to the downside. I don't recommend buying straddles unless you think that the options market is pricing it so cheap in a way Nine of the last 10. days after Netflix has reported the stock has been down. It was down 22%. You see that massive gap. Carter, you see the line that I drew? Pretty simple. Again, it doesn't really mean anything. I am hard-pressed to think that this stock is is meaningfully 10% higher or lower given how much damage has been done to it. That being said, if they were to guide up and beat, you might have this stock going right back to 450. That would clearly be more than 10%. But playing for a 10% downside move is not something that I think is a great, Idea at this moment where sentiment is in the stock and also the broad market.
1: Right, uh, high high stakes uh, poker for sure. I mean, one thing that we can say is it's holding the March low. Uh, today's one day, albeit, but uh, you know that's important. Undercutting a prior low means something. Just as holding, I've got a Netflix chart or two. If you want to just yeah, let's do film. it. And uh, you know we got the nice blue here, and uh, this is the all data chart, the log scale. Those are mathematically parallel lines, and if we look at the next one, you put in the middle line. And so does that tell us much? Not really. Uh, let's look at the here and now. And so a couple things. We know it's a 54% sell-off, that's a lot. And now if you look at the way the lines are drawn on the next chart, basically we are still not able to move above the downtrend in effect since the peak, but it wouldn't take much to do that. Now the next iteration here just shows sort of what my eye sees, which is you have to some extent the head and shoulders, which played out horribly, meaning ideally if one was short. And now, while this is not a head and shoulders, you have a sequence that would suggest that you know it's kind of down to where you probably get some sort of bounce. My hunch is to play though.
0: Yeah, you know, it's hard, you know, trying to figure out ten percent moves here because, you know, if the company were to miss and guide down, I mean, the stock would easily be down more than ten percent, like like a meaningful guy down. But if it's not so bad and they're basically saying that, you know, the second half is going to start to improve, then you have a stock that's probably sideways to up a little bit. The charts that you draw here, man. I mean, if there is any good news and you think about how poor sentiment is, you're you're making a beeline for four hundred, which was basically the highs from about a month ago, right? Right? And then the, you know, you're know you playing for gap pills. I'm not saying that's the way, but we really wanted to show you about how the market is perceiving the, uh, the movement and your charts are amazing. Listen, we are a couple minutes behind. I know that the guy generally likes to kind of stick to that 30 minutes here, but you and I had a little bit of a chit chat here and it was fun. Yes. So thank you, my man. I really appreciate you, you joining us. All right, well, that's it. That's going to do it for today's market call. So I want to thank Carter again, check out his work, at Worth Charting. He's going to have a way where you can check it out on a daily basis very soon. You're just have to check back here, Carter, and tell everybody how they can get your newsletter when it launches, I think, at some point in the next few days. So thank you for previewing your work for us. And thanks once again to our sponsor, CME Group and Open Exchange. Guy and I are going to be back tomorrow at 1 p.m., so check out the market call then. We will see you, and as Carter likes to say, trade well. Trade well. <laughs> see you bud thanks man bye guys bye.